You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Midtown. In this series, we are following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke so that we may experience true flourishing. Well, peace be with you. Uh, If you're a first-time guest, my name is Jamal, and uh, I am one of the pastors here, and we are thrilled uh, that you would join us today for worship. Um, I'm going to open us up with a word of prayer, and we'll get started from there. Uh, Father, thank you so much for this opportunity uh, just to be in your presence. Thank you for this opportunity to worship you. I pray, Father God, that you would allow your spirit to just work and to move. I pray, Lord, that you would allow your voice to speak to every single person here in a way that is needed for them and unique to them. I pray that we would all leave embracing our sonship, Embracing the fact that those who have placed their faith and trust in Christ now belong to you. I pray that we would hear your voice singing over us. Hear this invitation to see you as the one who is mighty to save. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening and the matchless wonderful name of Jesus Christ, we do pray. Amen. Amen. In 2011, I had the joy of going uh, to visit uh, Puerto Rico. It was my first uh, time going, and I remember getting off the plane uh, with a a team that was there uh, serving um, a church on mission And I was taken away by the beauty of the city of San Juan and uh, the culture, as well as the architect. But I'll never forget, as we were driving out of the airport for probably a stretch of five miles or so, everything looked so new. The paint on the walls seemed new. The streets seemed recently paved. And so I asked the pastor that we were there serving with, Man, is it always this way? Do you always keep this area this crisp and clean? To which he said, in a couple of months, uh, the president of the United States, President Obama, will visit. This is the first time that a sitting president has visited Puerto Rico on an official visit since John F. Kennedy. He said, as a result, Um, Our city is abuzz, and the government threw millions of dollars into this area, knowing that um, he was going to see this area. He said the streets were freshly paved, paint was put on every building that he might lay his eyes on. Now, any of you that know about that visit know that that visit was welcomed by many with enthusiasm because the president of the United States was coming to town. But it was also met with controversy, as some people knew that 2012 was going to be an election year and felt that the only reason that he was visiting 
was to firm up his base of Hispanic uh, voters uh, back in America. But regardless, there was a stir. Regardless, there was enthusiasm mixed with some confusion and some concern. As I think about that scene and seeing Puerto Rico and the way that it looked, I often think about this text in Matthew. In Matthew chapter 21, we see Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And Jesus's entry into Jerusalem is going to bring a mixed response. For some, it's going to be enthusiasm because they see Jesus as this messianic figure or a prophet who is coming in the name of the Lord. For others, we're going to see it's going to bring some confusion. At the end of the text, the crowd, some are going to ask, who is this? And yet for others, it's going to bring pure chaos as they are not going to be happy with his coming. But the thing I want you to see in today's text is this. Is Jesus entering into Jerusalem was him claiming and coming out of uh, the gates and, and finally just fully revealing himself as God's king. And as God's king, there's only two appropriate responses. Either you are going to crown him or you're going to kill him. When it comes to Jesus, there's no merely liking him. The more clearly you see him, the more clearly you see what he taught, the more you come to understand that he will not be liked. He will be only crowned or killed. In order to show that, I have two movements for you today. The first is we're going to see uh, King Jesus as he enters into uh, Jerusalem. And we're going to see that King Jesus declares his kingship by entering Jerusalem on a donkey. The second thing that we're going to see today is we're going to see the response to King Jesus. And we're going to see that there's a variety of responses to him entering into Jerusalem. So let's look at King Jesus and how he declares his kingship by entering into Jerusalem on a donkey. Verse one says, when they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus then sent two disciples telling them, go into the village ahead of you. At once you will find a donkey and there with her coat, untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. Now, it's important for us to know the context, context of what has just happened. Right in the passage before, we see that Jesus has just healed two blind men, two blind men who cry out to Jesus as he is passing by and they cry out, Lord, have mercy on us, the son of David. 
And while all the crowds tried to quiet them, Jesus had compassion on them. He stopped. He asked them, what do you want me to do for them? And they asked him to have mercy upon him. And Jesus ended up opening their eyes. Now, this isn't the first time that Jesus has healed two blind men. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 27, we see that Jesus heals two blind men, but that uh, is different on how Jesus responds. In Matthew chapter 9, after he heals two blind men, Jesus tells those blind men not to tell anyone else what he had done. And this is what theologians call the messianic secret. Uh, In essence, early on in Jesus' ministry, uh, Jesus would heal people and say, keep it quiet. Why? because um, it was not yet time for him to be persecuted by the religious leaders and crucified by Rome. And he knew that if people went around telling everyone what he had done for them, it could possibly speed up the divine timetable that he was on. But now we see in Matthew chapter 20, verses 29 through 34, when Jesus heals this set of blind men, He does not say keep it a secret. And the reason he no longer says keep it a secret is is because it is time for people to know who he is. Now, the disciples have just learned not only who Jesus is fully from his self-disclosure, but also what he has come to do as he has slowly revealed these things. In chapter 20, verse 18, Jesus says to his disciples, we are going up to Jerusalem. The son of man there will be handed over to the chief priest, the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will rise again. So Jesus has let them know we're headed to Jerusalem. And for the past few chapters in Matthew, it has been all about him journeying to Jerusalem This would have covered a space of about 100 miles from where they started to where they are now. On Friday of the Friday before the Sunday in which this text takes place, Jesus is in a small town called Bethany and he stays with uh, some friends of his uh, that have become dear to him. Mary and Martha, who you all know, is Lazarus' brothers. And on that Friday, Jesus's feet is anointed uh, with uh, uh, Mary's hair. And Jesus says that as long as his gospel is preached, this act of service will be remembered as her preparing his body for death. Jesus has set his eyes on Jerusalem and he has set his eyes on Jerusalem because he was born to die and he died only to rise again. He set his eyes to Jerusalem because he knew that he would have to travel the Via Della Rosa, the road of sorrow, that he would have to go up to Golgotha's hill in order to be crucified so that those who would place their faith and trust in him could become sons and daughters of God. Every step that Jesus is going to make from here on is going to be extremely deliberate. And that's what we find ourselves in this text. Jesus is two miles away from Jerusalem and he gives these disciples some peculiar instructions. 
He instructs them to go into the town ahead of them and that there they will find a colt and a young colt that has never been ridden. And that when they go into the city, if someone asks, what are you doing with this cult? You just simply say, the Lord has use of them. Now, I think it's important to mention here that this is the first time and only time in the gospel accounts that Jesus is going to travel by an animal. And I also think that it's important to mention that the the animal that Jesus is going to travel by is not going to be a war horse. It's not going to be a stallion, but it's going to be a donkey. It's going to be an animal that is referred to as a beast of a burden, an animal that was ridden on by kings when they would come into a city to pronounce peace and when they wanted to show that they were humble. David in 1 Samuel drove into Jerusalem on a donkey. Solomon drove into Jerusalem on a donkey. Prophets in the Old Testament often drove into Jerusalem on a donkey. And here we see the Son of Man is going to deliberately, after walking 98 miles, spend the last two miles riding on a donkey. But why? Well, Matthew tells us in verse 4 that this took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell the daughter, Zion, see, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foil of the donkey. Matthew, as he has throughout his gospel, inserts Old Testament prophecies in order to uh, firm up his argument as he's writing to the early church that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And in Zephaniah chapter 9, the prophet Zephaniah is giving a word of judgment for eight verses. Then we get to verses 9 and 10. We see a a messianic promise or word that the Messiah one day will enter into Jerusalem and he will come in gently, not on a war horse, but on a donkey. This is Jesus coming out the woodwork saying, y'all, the king has come. The king has entered. The word of God is being fulfilled. And verse six says that the disciples went and did just as Jesus directed. Even though the disciples fully didn't understand all that Jesus was telling them to do, when they could not trace him, they trusted him because he had become their king. You remember, you remember Peter's confession Just a few chapters before when Peter, Jesus entered into Caesarea Philippi and he asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? And then the disciples said, some say that you are Elijah and others say that you are are, are Jeremiah. But Jesus says, but I say that you are the son of the living God. And you remember Jesus' response, flesh and blood has has not revealed this unto you. Jesus enters into verse seven. Jerusalem on a cult and the disciples pay homage to him and they lay their clothes on him, which brings us to our second and our last movement is the response that Jesus is met with. We're going to see in this text that Jesus is met with a few responses. 
One response by the disciples is reverence and homage as they take off their cloaks and their clothes and allow Jesus to sit on them. But then we see that the large crowds response in verse eight. They spread their clothes on the road. Others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. Then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed him shouted, Hosanna to the son of God. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So there's the disciples response and then there's the crowd's response. Now, this is the week of Passover. 20 some odd chapters so far has been given over to uh, the first 30 years of Jesus's life. Let that sink in. 20 something chapters tell us about his birth, him as a child. We have gap years from about 12 to 30. And then most of it is, is Jesus' ministry from 30 to 33. Matthew slows the whole story down to the point that we are going to have a detailed account of, of every day of the last week of Jesus. And the crowds respond. They respond by taking off their clothes. Now, what were they doing? When royalty or king would come into a town, crowds would take off their cloaks. They would take palm branches and they would lay it on the ground. And this was a sign of their submission to royalty. This was a sign of them saying, we are your obedient servants. But we also see in this text that they quote Psalm 118. I believe we have that on the screen. Psalm 118, we read these words in the Old Testament. Lord, save us. Lord, please grant us success. He who comes in the name of the Lord is blessed. From the house of the Lord, we will bless you. This is a a, a shouting, a a direct shout from from Psalm 118. They say Hosanna, which simply um, in the Greek is, uh, represents the Hebrew word, save us. Save us, son of David. Son of David. In Matthew, we see that there's, this is the settled admission from the crowd that Jesus is uh, the, the prophet that they've awaited from, the one who's from the lineage of David and who they hope will restore Israel back into, into their place of prominence. But we also see in Uh, Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel and John's gospel, uh, an even more forthright uh, declaration of Jesus as king. In each of those gospels, the crowd is saying that, Jesus, you have come to, uh, to introduce the kingdom of God to us. The crowd shouting is a hope that Jesus is the leader that they've long awaited for him. But not everyone shouts this in verse 10. When they entered into Jerusalem, the whole city was in uproar saying, who is this? Who is this? This who is this is probably less of who is this? Like what's his name? And probably more of who is this? Who is this man from a small town in Nazareth? A hood, a ghetto of sorts. A forgotten place. You remember Nathaniel's uh, question. Uh, 
Does anything good come out of Nazareth? This is more of who is this? Who does he think he is? Some in the crowd, they answered, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. What do we do with this text today? Two things. Two things I want you to see as we think about this text and the crowd response. The first is I want you to see that Jesus is the leader that everyone longs for. He really is. We are entering into a political season in which our country is so divided. And most of people's anger and division comes down to the fact that they want to see a righteous ruler. We want to see a righteous party that is going to rule with gentleness yet firmness, that's going to rule with integrity, that's going to be a a person of dignity and hope, that's going to be able to communicate with those who are both in power and those who are oppressed. And, And as we look around us, We see that there's so much pain, there's so much turmoil, there's so much hopelessness because because there's not many places in which we can find those types of rulers. And if if we find them, the the parties in which they belong are, are so turbulent. But Matthew is showing his readers that Jesus is that person. He is that king. He is that leader. And that no earthly person and no earthly party can totally represent all that is true, good, and beautiful. Only Jesus and his kingdom does. I want you to look at Jesus. Look at how. How even though he is the sovereign king of the universe, even though he is the one who spoke the world into existence, even though Colossians chapter one, he is the one who is holding all things together with his word. Even though he's the one who is allowing earth right now to to spin on an invisible access and who who is holding our air's atmosphere together, he is humble. He's humble and he's gentle. The text says in verse 5, Zephaniah 9.9, tell daughter Zion, daughter Zion, this language of family, see your king is coming to you, gentle, gentle, mounted on a donkey. A donkey represented peace. A, A donkey represented humility. Your God is gentle. And this is the message of Matthew. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, sums up his whole book. This is where Jesus gives his invitation to the crowd. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my heart is gentle, and I am lowly. The God of this universe who owns everything, who creates everything for his glory is gentle and lowly. And today, Christian, he invites you into his rest. He invites you to see him as your king and your ruler, as your God. Place your hope in him. Some trust in chariots and others in horses, the psalmist say, but we will put our trust in the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord means in the character of God. This God who revealed himself as gracious and compassionate soul to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This God who has promised that he is going to make all things right again. But not only is he 
lowly. And not only is he gentle, but he's a servant. The passage before this, Jesus is talking, you guys know this, to his disciples and their mother, two disciples and their mother and the mother wants. And we talked about this last week, her sons to be in a prominent position once the kingdom is ushered in. And Jesus doesn't condemn her or them or beat them up, but he redirects their heart and say, you want to know, you want to know who the good leaders are in my kingdom? It's the people who aren't like the Gentile leaders who lead by force and who demand others to serve them. But the leaders in my community, those who are great in my community are those who are servants. And then he says these words. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave, just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to serve you. But here's the thing. Your deepest need, Christian, and our deepest need as kingdom citizens, it isn't for our political party to win on November what, 4th? Listen to me. Our deepest and first need isn't for us to be freed from situations that we consider oppressive. Your deepest and first need is to have your sins forgiven by a triune God. Because if you are freed from oppression, If all of your dreams in this earthly realm come true and you die without reconciliation with God, you are going to spend eternity away from God and you will not have true joy or peace. Jesus came to reconcile people to the Father so that we are no longer under his wrath as a result of our rebellion and sin against him. And all those who see Jesus Christ as King and Lord, as the one by whom which this universe is is meant to glorify, will be saved. Second thing I want you to see in this text is this. Not only is Jesus this amazing leader that all of our heart long for. In fact, let 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 me show you this. There's a recent survey that was done by uh, Politico. It was a, a quantitative serve, uh, study. It was done on October 1st. It was uh, published. And in it, they asked both de- Democrats and Republicans, if your party doesn't win the election, do you believe that violence is justified? And over one third of those who were surveyed responded that they believed that violence was a little justified if their party didn't win. Over 40 percent in both parties said that they could see themselves becoming violent if their leader of choice didn't win. Christians, we are surrounded by people who are placing their hope who are fighting and clawing for the kingdoms of this world, believing 
that a party is going to solve their deepest problems. And we have been given an answer in a king that constantly reminds us that there is only one kingdom and one king who will meet our deepest needs. And in this text, we see several responses that remind us that either we're going to crown Jesus, kill Jesus, or kill Jesus, but we can't merely like him. The first is the enthusiastic response. We see this from the crowds. Jesus come in, they cry, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And they are enthusiastic. They have this positive energy towards them. The second is we see this kind of confused crowd. I'll call them the ignorant crowd. They simply ask the question, who is this? And the third, we're going to see a couple verses later, and we're going to deal with this next week, is we will see this, uh, uh, this, this, this uh, conflicting crowd almost a a violent crowd. We see this in chapter uh, 21. It says, verse 41, while the Pharisees were together, Jesus questioned, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? I'm sorry, I'm on the wrong wrong passage. I'm like, that don't look like what they said. (laughs) We're going to go back to, to verse 14. The blind man and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonders that he did and the children shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these children are crying? So we see those who are praising Jesus. We see those who are ignorant towards Jesus and we see those who are indignant. And here's a pop quiz we're going to put on the screen. Which response do you think was a picture of saving faith? A, B or C? Or D, none of the above? Well, the answer is D, none of the above. A positive response to Christ does not save you. A response in which you say, I like Jesus, does not save you. The same crowd at the end of the week is going to be amongst the religious leaders yelling, crucify him. And the reason their hearts is going to turn from Hosanna to crucify him is because Jesus is not going to fall in line with their vision of the Messiah. Jesus is not coming into Rome to judge Rome. He's not coming into Rome to overthrow Rome. That was their hope. They saw him open blind eyes. They saw him unclog deaf ears. They saw him enable the mute to speak. They saw him feed crowds of 5,000 plus people with two fish and five loaves. They're like, surely he is the Messiah. And if he could do all that, he can take out Pilate, He can take out Herod. He's greater than Caesar and anyone else. But when they see Jesus come lowly, when they see him get beat with cat and nine whips, when they see a crown of thorns placed upon his head, when they see him being mocked and flogged, they are going to turn into rage. They're going to say, this isn't the politician that we voted for. This isn't who we expected him to be. And the same is true in, in some of your lives. The reason you're following Jesus is because you think it's convenient and you think that he is some type of genie, that if you rub him the right way, 
If you read your word enough, if you pray enough, if you be a good person enough, whatever you want on earth is going to come to pass. And that's why when you suffer and things don't go your way, you're constantly torn and turn away from him rather than turn into him. Jesus is not a genie. He's a king. He's a king who is gentle. He's a king who is humble. He's a king who has come to serve you and to free you from your sin. And yes, he is a king who's going to come back one day on a war horse with judgment on all those who set their kingdom up against his. But he is a king who is in control and he demands lordship over your life. He demands that you trust him even when you can't trace him. He demands that you worship him even when your relationships aren't going the way that you think they should and your career hasn't taken off in the way that you desire. Positive enthusiasm towards Jesus will lead you to say, kill him. When you open the scripture and you see what he actually taught and what he stands for. You cannot have Jesus as Savior without him as Lord, just like you won't be able to have me as Jamal without Williams. You can't separate the two. He's one. For some of us in here, we are claiming ignorance. And for others of us in here, our hearts are just at contempt against God. And if that's you today, and you're not a Christian, I don't know your story, but I do know that you know deep down inside of you that something isn't right. We have advanced in technology. We have advanced in medicine. We have advanced in knowledge as a country and as a, as a, as a world, as a people, and the world is still messed up. Children are still starving. People are still being abused and murdered and treated as slaves. And no matter what country you go to and no matter what type of of, of political party is in control or political philosophy there is, there is still pain. There is still brokenness. You know that this world is messed up and it doesn't make sense. And I'm telling you that the God of this universe who created all things has spoken and he has told us who he is, who we are. What separates us from peace and causes us not to love one another and what he's about to do, who he is. He is a God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Who we are, we are those who have rebelled against him. What's going to happen? Those who rebel against him will not get better. This world will not get better, but we will go deeper inside and become more selfish and say no to his presence, which is love, joy, and peace. And where we're headed one day on the day of judgment, God will crack open the sky and everyone will see how beautiful he is and that he is truth and that he is ultimate goodness. And those who accept him as king will reign with him in the new heavens and new earth. And he will wipe away every tear, give us new bodies, And fulfill all of our deepest longings in Christ Jesus. And those who do not will spend eternity bitter away from his presence. Away from everything that is true, good, 
and lovely. And to those of you who are Christians, my question is today, right now in your heart, how are you responding? Are you bowing? Are you saying Jesus is Lord of my life? Are you just enthusiastic and going through the motions, saying all the right things because things are going well right now, but you don't love him for who he is, not simply what he does? Are you intentionally walking in ignorance, not following him as his disciple, being a learner so that you would grow in his likeness, ignoring areas of your life that you know that he's calling you to press into and discipline for his glory? Are you walking in utter contempt, living in sin, rebelling against him, even though you know that he is both Savior and Lord because you enjoy creature comforts? This passage reminds us that Jesus is so beautiful. He's the only one that can fulfill us. And that joy and peace is found when we take him on his terms. Because either we're going to crown him or we're going to kill him. But by God, he's not going to allow you to merely like him. And every Sunday we come to remind ourselves that Jesus is Lord by taking communion. We break bread. We drink wine or juice. The wine is marked by twine, whatever your conscience permits. And we take this as a family, reminding ourselves of Jesus' gentleness and the fact that he came to serve us. The wafer in front of you represents the body of Jesus, which was broken for you. The juice, the blood of Jesus, which was shed for you. We take this as a proclamation week in and week out that Jesus is Lord. He is Lord. He's not a genie. He's not a puppet. While he calls us friend, he's not a friend that we can manipulate and use. He is in control. And he loves us. So Christian, as you take this, eat and eat all of it. If you're not a Christian, we ask you to not partake in this meal. There'll be other Christians who are not partaking in it as well as they get their heart right before the Lord. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit sojournchurch.com slash midtown.